Welcome back to the Educator's Room podcast, a place for educators everywhere, regardless of grade level or content area. Put down your grade books and grab a glass of wine and learn with our host, Francesca. Welcome, everybody, to episode 68 of the Educator's Room podcast. I'm your host, Francesca Warren, and today we have Megan from Too Cool for Middle School. Hey, Megan, how are you? Hi there. I'm doing great. (laughs) Yay! So before we start, we're going to, tonight we're going to talk about social studies and the need for critical thinking. So Megan is a guru in all things history, historian, um, to say the least. So before we start, give everybody, like, your background in education. Uh, This is my sixth year teaching. I'm a middle school teacher, and I've bounced around a little bit teaching sixth, seventh, and eighth, and sometimes I teach English, and sometimes I teach history, which is great. Those two really (laughs) coincide well. Um, My master's degree is in history, and that's really where my passion is. Oh, yeah. So, and, and you're passionate about history. So, guys, I was on her Instagram page. Megan, tell everybody your Instagram handle. It's too cool for middle school. <laughs> so I was looking at it, right? And there is a guy, I'm going to mispronounce his name. Oh, actually, I did, okay, we'll start with him. It's fine. His name is Rothschild Francis. Yes. Okay, tell us about him. And guys, look on her Instagram page because he's a really interesting character, not character, fit, um, Oh, gosh, I just lost my train of thought. He's a really interesting (laughs) figure in civil rights in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So tell us about him. How did you become obsessed with him? Who is this guy? Like, tell us about him. So this is what I love about history. Um, It can just bring so many cool stories together. So when I was getting my master's in history, you have to come up with something to write your thesis on. But in the meantime, you write a lot of other papers. So one day I was over at my husband's dad's house, and he's from the Virgin Islands, and his wife was telling me about how there's a statue in the Virgin Islands of his grandfather. So this is my husband's great-grandfather. Okay. And their whole family's from over there in the Virgin Islands. And I was like, really? What did he do? And she said, oh, he's like the Martin Luther King Jr. of the Virgin Islands. I was like, what? I've never heard of this guy, but I have resources, and I know how to do historical research, so I was like, okay, well, I'll dedicate one of my research papers to this guy and just learn a little more about him, but as soon as I started learning about him, I ended up just changing course in my whole master's degree and writing everything about him and getting a, a master's degree in basically Virgin Islands history, so he was about 25 years old when the United States purchased the Virgin Islands in 1917, then 101 years, and he was a shoemaker, actually, and he just had this uh, blackboard outside of his shop, and he would write the daily news on his little blackboard, and he was very into U.S. history. He knew all about the American Revolution, and so when the United States took over the Virgin Islands, they installed a Navy government. It was seven days before they entered World War One. So oh, they wow. were using it as a naval base. And there were all of these naval officers from the South controlling now this population that was mostly black. And so he recognized right away that this was a problem and that they didn't have any citizenship and it wasn't really a well-thought-out um, takeover. And so he fought for Virgin Islanders 
civil rights and citizenship in the Virgin Islands. He actually wrote legislation and took it to Congress in 1924 and just did these amazing things. He was one of the um, uh, ACLU's first clients. They uh, helped him purchase a printing press and he had a a newspaper in the Virgin Islands. He would write letters to the editor in New York of the New York Times. And doing all of this as a black man in the Virgin Islands and just standing up to racism and oppression and doing incredible things for the people of the Virgin Islands. Wow. And this is your husband's grandfather. Great-grandfather. Great-grandfather. Wow. Like, that's so interesting. So you learn about all of this and you decide that he is going to be like, like you're obsessed at this point. And so you write your thesis about him, right? I've spent, like, hundreds and hundreds of dollars on all of the books that I could possibly get my hands on about him. There's not much out there. I traveled to Washington, D.C., to the Library of Congress, so I could see his actual newspapers. Um, He wrote letters. He was friends with W.E.B. Du Bois, and he was part of the Harlem Renaissance. He would travel back and forth to New York. He was just this incredible person that most people don't know anything about. Wow. So what I'm thinking, and this is like a totally different conversation. You need to think about writing a book about him. Like this guy, I'm like, as soon as we get done with this interview, I'm going to go to Amazon (laughs) and like find some books about him. Like that's so interesting. And there's, there's nothing, there are no books specifically about him. My students were asking me about him because I, um, created like lesson plans about right. him but um they're like oh well, well how can I learn more about him I'm like I know you just have to ask me I'm the person that knows everything about him what? did your husband no know <laughs> had your husband been told about him like did he understand like all the great things that he did no and you know what is a little bit crazy so after I did all this research I found out that um he was constantly being thrown in jail by this uh judge on the island. He didn't have the right to a jury trial because he wasn't a citizen. So he, um, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Hold on. He wasn't a citizen (laughs) of the United States. They were citizens of nowhere because they had been, um, under Denmark previously. And then when the United States bought them, they lost any ties to Denmark, but the U S did not give them citizenship. So they had no citizenship whatsoever. And he was the one to bring that up and explain this is a really dangerous way to live. You can't leave us in this like political limbo. Wow. So now residents of the U S Virgin islands are U S citizens. Now they are. Yeah. He's yeah, the one that started okay. the legislation for that. Wow. You like, this is your, okay. This is a totally different podcast, but this is going <laughs> to be like your, maybe your life work. Like that's so interesting uh-huh. to be able to tell your son to say, this is the bloodline you come from. You know, uh-huh. like I saw your, your shirt with him on it. I was like, Oh my God, that's yeah. so cute. <laughs> but this, this is so I'm interesting. Upset. Even like my husband's family thinks I'm crazy. They're like, okay, you could calm down. Like with the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but this is how history dies. Like you have to, exactly. somebody, somebody has to champion for it. Somebody has to learn more. Somebody has to put a book out about him. So other people will yes. learn. And, and maybe the thing was that he had to flee from the Island. So he moved to New York, um, like in 1928, I think. Oh, wow. And, 
I haven't been able to find out exactly why, but he left his family behind. So the only thing that my father-in-law knew about him were bad things. All he knew was that his uh, grandfather abandoned them and left them and never contacted them again. So it was kind of nice to be able to tell him, like, look at all these great things I found about him. Like, there's so much more to the story. Like, his mom was very bitter against her father for abandoning her, which is justified, but there's so much more to the story. Wow. So I wonder what his life was like when he got to New York until he died. Like, have you looked at census records or anything like that? Yeah, I found some census records, and he was living with another lady, and he was living in Kings, and um, he died in 1963, and I've gone on, like, Google Maps and found the building where he lived, and (laughs) it didn't seem like he continued to write or to really work um, in civil rights like he was doing before. I think they just, they broke him um, Mm. on the island, and he just, he fled, but I, I... want to find out more. I did everything I could, but I'm going to have to like go to New York for a summer and just dig around like a detective. Oh, wow. That is so interesting. But it brings the point of what we're talking about tonight, about the need for social studies and the need, because it allows kids to think critically about themselves, about their history, Mm -hmm. about their culture. So we're 2018. We've had this election in 2016. We are, there are people who don't know the basic like basic history things, right? Mm-hmm. What is the, like, talk to us about how we as a nation seem to be going backwards in some of the civil liberties that we enjoy. And I believe it's because we don't have a firm grip on history as a people, as a human race. It's true. It's true. And I think one of the things that also kind of drives us to that point is that we've become more and more polarized in Mm. our politics. Um, I was reading this great book called The Political Classroom. Okay. It's by Diana E. Hess and Paula McAvoy. And we can link that on your site. Absolutely. Um, And they did some research. This this book is is older. (laughs) So it's a little bit older. Um, They wrote it during Obama's presidency. But they did a lot of research about just the history of our political parties and how since about the 70s, people have become so much more polarized and the parties themselves have become so much more polarized. Mm. Um, And this really started after the civil rights movement and the Southern Democrats took a stand against civil rights and they shifted their allegiance to the Republican Party. Yeah. And... This wasn't the case before, but now issues like abortion, prayer, gun control, they're like defining issues of parties, and there's much less crossover. So this is mm. kind of a new phenomena for us that our parties are so polarized and there's so much less um, cooperation and any, any crossover between the parties. And they also studied how we, we actually think that the other side does not have our country's best interest in mind, which is really dangerous Mm. to to actually believe that, you know, if you're a a Democrat, that the Republicans do not care about America, or if you're a Republican, that Democrats do not care about America. So we've got, we're in this dangerous situation, and a lot of it has to do with such polarized views. Mm. 
Do you think that, and I think that's really interesting. I was talking with somebody, you know, um, there used to be a time where I would argue with my friends on social media about topics, but I've, I've realized that facts don't change people's opinions. If that makes sense, like clear facts don't change opinions. And so Uh I was reading something, um, gosh, I can't even think of the term of the word, but it was basically saying that people believe what they believe. And if they didn't believe it, it would call social, um, is it social dissonance? Oh, cognitive dissonance. Yes. And it said Uh that they can't, they can't even confront it because if they did, it would invalidate so much of what they believe. Like they can't even get over that hump. And so when Uh you talk to somebody like, We've been writing pretty consistently about um, the the march on Washington and how people are trying to come together for common sense gun laws, et cetera, et cetera. And I had somebody write today and they said, basically, you're trying to take away our guns and that's not going to help. And and I thought to myself, no one said that, but it made Uh me realize like this person, there's a block like they can't even Uh get past that. And so I guess my question to you is, do you think a lot of it is because there's there should be some things we should have common grounds on. Like we all agree Uh you need a driver's license to drive like you need a driver's license. Right. Uh I wonder, (laughs) is it is it is it willfulness or do like I don't know, like what is it that like facts won't even change someone's opinion, especially about things in history? Yeah, and we have more information than we've ever had at our fingertips, yet people, you know, think that um, the information is so tainted or so biased, and so they they won't even accept facts anymore. But I think that that's something that we can at least help (laughs) with a little bit in education. Um, One thing that they talk about in the political classroom is that the classroom is the time to learn how to do these things, to have these conversations without doing, like you said, where people just completely jump to an extreme and don't actually hear what you say. So one thing that they suggest are um, structured academic controversies. Mm. And I've used these in my class and they are great. And at the middle school level, what I do is, is I'll give them a topic, and I'll give them the research as well. And so a really great place to find research, um, unbiased research on both sides of an issue is ProCon.org. Yes, yes. I really like that site. And so I'll have my students, um, I will split them up. I will give them the side so that they're arguing for a certain side, but I don't really know, and no one really knows if that's actually what they believe or not. So it's pretty safe because we know that we're kind of all just playing a part. So I give them their side, and they work with a partner, and there's a a structure to it where you find your evidence, you present your evidence, and the other side's not even allowed to respond to your evidence. They can't respond to your argument. The first thing they have to do is just repeat it back to you and make sure that they understand before they can even address it at all. Mm. So we just have these practices for good democratic conversations in class and eventually at the end of the of the activity they can come to an agreement and kind of let down their their facade and talk about it a little bit more but they've practiced using evidence being respectful listening quietly while the other side talks and making sure they understand their side because that's really important and 
they don't see that from us. As adults, we're not giving them a good example of how to have good democratic conversations. Mm. We just yell at each other. (laughs) Yeah, just yell at each other. Unfriend each other. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you this. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm in Georgia. You're in California. But I feel like there's Mm -hmm. been a slow breakdown that people think they don't need history anymore. They think that it doesn't have a place, that it's, you know, you're just learning about old dead people. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing the same thing happening? I see it in that, um, for example, in California, like we're not tested on history at Mm. all. Oh, really? So, you know, which for one thing is sort of nice. You know, history teachers like, great, nobody checks in on us. But there's no accountability for mm. history. Like, we're tested in math and English. Right. But there's there's no way to tell if our students are getting a good history education. And then in the lower grades in elementary school, since that's not what they're tested on, a lot of teachers just kind of push it to the side because they need to make sure that their kids are ready for the math and English tests. And so some kids aren't even really getting history when they're younger or social studies. So I can see it like on a like on a macro level there where it doesn't come across as important. Mm. Do you think that's per- on purpose? I, I, like sometimes I, I have to check myself to say, you know, is it on purpose? Because even like you said, it's good that you don't have a state test, but where's the accountability? Where is the, mm-hmm. yeah, do you think this, it's on purpose? Do you think it's on purpose for a grander scheme of things? I don't know. It's hard to say. I'm not really sure. It was just recently taken out with, well, it gets really complicated because there's no common core state standards for Mm. history. Right. And as far as I can tell, there might not ever be because it's a really difficult thing to make uh, kind of across the board because... Um, like in, in the area where I am, for example, we have parents that really want to use a lot more Indian history and um, history about Hinduism. But, you know, maybe in Georgia, that's not as important to parents there. And so it's a, it's a really tough thing to kind of standardize. Right. And so it hasn't gotten into the Common Core state standards. So then there's no test that's made built on those standards. So it's kind mm. of complex. Wow. But there are literacy standards, and I, I appreciate that, that um, history is becoming much more, I think, about, like, learning how to work with sources and how to work with evidence and write about it and read it rather than just memorize, like, facts and dates and mm. locations and stuff. Wow. That's really interesting. So, and I agree, because in middle school for us in Georgia, they learn Georgia history. Um, and so, you know, you can't standardize that because every state, I'm sure, has a grade level in which they do their state history yeah. or whatnot. I have to ask you, as we go into, um, as we're well into 2018, and you're looking at um, the need for social studies and the need for critical thinking, how does social studies fill that gap? Like, you might have answered a little bit of it, but how, for those people who are listening who are like, oh, I hated social studies in high school, <laughs> you know, like, you always find those people, I think, I think history is fascinating, but how does mm-hmm. social studies fill that gap on what we so desperately need? My favorite thing about teaching history is just helping kids to learn more about different perspectives around them and to 
to look at a situation from more than one side. So we do a lot of um, DBQs, which are document-based questions. We also use a website called Reading Like a Historian. And one of the great things about uh, both of those resources is that we'll have like a historical question. So what was one we did recently? Um, uh, There's this leader in India named Ashoka. So was Ashoka an enlightened ruler or a ruthless conqueror? And then the document that we have to to read and try and get the information from conflict, and Mm. they say different things. And so it's really hard to come up with an answer. So we have to talk about, okay, what does this document say? Who is the author of this document? When was this document written? Do they have a motivation to kind of push one side or the other? Who do you find to be more credible? And how do you come to a conclusion here? So I love helping students work through those kind of questions. And we don't always come to the same answer, Mm. which is fine, but... You have to be able to back up your conclusion with evidence from the documents and explain why you think this is credible. Mm. And that's a really good point because in those documents, kids are reading for their own. They're pulling evidence. Then they're discussing it. And then they're able to take all of those things and form an opinion and be able to back up that opinion. Mm -hmm. It requires a lot of writing. It requires a lot of speaking. So it's, um, it's supporting all of those ELA standards. It's great for that, but for critical thinking, it's incredible. And if they can apply that thinking, you know, when they're older and they go on Facebook or they read something in the news and they can apply those same critical thinking skills, like, hmm, okay, who is the author of this source? When was it written? Who do they work for? What is their agenda? Mm-hmm. Then our society is going to be a lot better off if we have a generation of people who can do that absolutely and they can determine what's fake news and what's real news um mm-hmm. that's, that's <laughs> our next unit when we get back from spring break <laughs> exactly like what's you know what is fake news what's real news i had somebody we shared an article about something um may oh it was about in oklahoma somebody retired at 26 years um and they took their paycheck stub and said hey this is what you have to pay um, in insurance if you retire early. Um, and they had all the, the evidence and a news ch- um, channel had picked up on, I believe it was the Washington Post. And they were reporting about, you know, teacher retirement, how it's different. You don't get a pension, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. And someone said, that's fake news. And I, was, I, I thought to myself, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean that's fake news? They were like, I don't believe this. And I thought to myself, well, it's just interesting what people sometimes when people don't want to believe something or that's their first defense now that's fake news Mm -hmm. and for some Mm -hmm. people just saying that it's fake news like it it doesn't cause for any evidence or anything like that so yeah that's Mm -hmm. I was I was flabbergasted to say the least um so I have to ask you how did you get so interested in history because you know I've found that you either love it or hate it like And there are a lot of people that hate it. And I wonder if it's just because they opened the textbook and just read the book. Yeah, I I always loved it, like all the way through middle school and high school. And I specifically remember in eighth grade, in California, you do like U.S. history in eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And so I remember learning about like women's suffrage and women getting the right to vote 
And that just like lit a fire in me. I was like, what? There was a time when women couldn't vote? And I couldn't believe all of the, the, the things that, uh, you know, people used to expect of women. And then I loved learning about that kind of history. And I remember that we had to write an essay about the amendment that we thought was most important. So, of course, I wrote about the, the amendment that gave women the right to vote. And right. I was just so passionate about it. And my, I had a really great teacher, and he really, like, fanned the flames, and he would let me ask my questions and vent my frustrations. And I think that was where it kind of started for me was with a really good teacher. Mm. And they and they made you interested in it. Oh, that's that's really mm-hmm. interesting. Let me and ask- it like affected me. I could see that. Okay, this thing that happened a long time ago has an impact on me today. Mm. What do you do? What do you do for when you're teaching controversial topics? Um, we've written pretty intensively about this, and you know the go-to answer is I let the kids come with their own decisions. But how do you teach a topic where just the topic itself is so inflammatory to people? Like I think about um, the Second Amendment and how people like can't even have a conversation about it. How do you mm-hmm. teach those topics and get kids to understand there are all different sides? Like how do you how do you do that? Well, the history that I teach this year, and it kind of changes depending on the year, but I have sixth grade, which is ancient world history. And so I do try to, just so that, you know, I'm protecting myself, I just make sure to stick to the the curriculum and the, the content standards. But you'd be surprised at things that actually do come across as controversial. So you have to be ready at any time for these things. So, um we did that essay about, or the like, the research project about Ashoka. He's from India, and I have a lot of students from India. And the first day, we only read one article about him, and it, it cast him in a very negative light. Mm. And so I had students come up to me very concerned, and they're like, "But there was so much more to him, and he wasn't he wasn't only like that. He did good things." And I was like, "I know. It's okay. We're gonna we're gonna get there. We're gonna right. show the other side tomorrow." So I'm sure that, um, you know, that started off as controversial to them until they realized, like, oh, okay, we're getting both sides of the story here. And then we recently did Ancient China, and we were talking about um, the Qin Dynasty, and the, the emperor was very oppressive, and he, like, killed scholars and burned books. And I have a student who is, had come here recently from China, and he was shocked, and he was very offended. And oh, wow. Said, no, that, that does not happen in China. That's, that's not what happened. We don't censor in China. And I was like, oh, oh, oh dear. Right. <laughs> right. So I had to be <laughs> aware of the perspective that he's coming from. And that really illuminated things for me. I was like, oh, that's right. He's gone through his whole education in China so far. They teach him completely differently. So I end up with, like, very worldly controversial views just because of the population that I teach, but I have to be super sensitive to the ways that all kinds of kids were raised and make sure that I have factual evidence and and things to back up any claims, because I've got kids that are ready to challenge me on anything. (laughs) Oh, right, right, and those kids, yes. You know, one of the top-button topics um, for a lot of our social studies teachers is the teaching about Islam. 
And they say, you know, we can't even get halfway through the first article about it. And parents are calling the school. And I was like, really? He was like, yes, it is absolutely insane. And so do you notice that? How much you need to teach about it, right? Right. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, we did. I don't know if you've heard of World Hijab Day. No. Um, Oh, yes, 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 I have. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it was. I had actually not really heard of it, but I'm, I'm sure you follow like Apron Education on Instagram and uh, Read Like a Rockstar, and they had um, right. done a, a unit on it, and so I, I kind of learned about it from them. Absolutely. But I was looking into some resources for my sixth graders, and so I found something online. I hope that I saved the link somewhere, but it was um, one of those quizzes that you take online, and it was like, how well do you know head coverings and so it showed all of these women wearing different kinds of head coverings and um you had to click like which religion you thought that they were like muslim or hindu or sikh or christian and it's really difficult like we all got every single one wrong and most i think they purposely did it so that actually none of them were muslim right and so then my kids were able to see there were even you know women from china and women in, like, Ethiopia that, that wear head coverings. Absolutely. Like, look, this is not just uh, a Muslim thing to, to wear a hijab. This is just a cultural thing. People do it all over the world for all kind of religions, and it shows, like, a nun in America. Nuns mm, wear yep. head coverings, Absolutely. too. <laughs> Absolutely. Christian. It's, it's just something that a lot of people do, and so it doesn't mean anything negative. It does not mean that you're a terrorist. It does not mean Absolutely. that you hate the United States. This is just something a lot of people do. And I think that that kind of opened their eyes. And I have a student who is Sikh, and so he wears a turban. Absolutely. And he was explaining to us why he wears it and saying that, um, you know, Sikhs are not Muslim, but they wear a turban just as a way to identify a helper because they want to be helpers in the world. And so if somebody needs help, they should be able to look around see this man in a turban and know that he's there as a helper and mm. so it's a, a sign of, of goodwill so it was just a really cool day to have that conversation about what it really is and we haven't even gotten to Islam yet but that was just kind of a something to kind of prime their little minds <laughs> make them right. more open to Islam and that's a really interesting fact let me ask you this do you find that kids today are I mean, of course middle school is you know that that period in which you're almost an adult, but not really, but you're not a baby anymore. Do you find that kids are more empathetic or less empathetic, like reading about other people or is, has, is it, has it always been the same? Cause I'll hear some people say, well, kids are just so mean today. They don't want to read about another culture. That's not their theirs. Do you, have you experienced that? I find that my kids are really interested in other cultures, but the places that I've taught in always have a lot of students who are in American minorities. And so we talk about how they're actually global majorities, but they're American minorities. And so mm. they've, they've always been really interested in, in other people, maybe because they know what that feels like. Right. Hi, Jensen. My son is saying hi. Oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally fine. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know if that if it's different in maybe just different 
parts of the, the country, but right. middle schoolers, in my experience, have always really enjoyed learning about other people. Mm. How do you, you know, because it's obvious looking at your Instagram page that you're pretty big into social issues, um, into social mm-hmm. justice. <laughs> How do you infuse that into your curriculum? How do you make sure, because I just wrote a really a piece today about how Dr. King's legacy has been sanitized and he's been reduced uh-huh. to a meme and people just think he's this person that had a dream. Like they don't connect yes. like the big things. And so, yes. um, how do you take your, your knowing that you have to care about others and what's good for others and just social justice period and infuse that through a lens of history? I think it's really important to to know your stuff for one thing. Right, absolutely. And not meaning to do a, a shameless plug here, but I have a, a YouTube channel where I talk about this a lot. If mm. anyone else is ever interested in that, but I, I did a YouTube video about how to teach Rosa Parks and just dispelled some of the myths mm. around Rosa Parks and her being tired. And that, <laughs> that is not yes. the case, and that was not the story. And so. Um, really doing your own research Absolutely. and making sure that you know the full story and know the details, I think that helps you immensely, knowing details and not just like, here was the hero and here was the victim. Absolutely. That's rarely ever the case. Right. Because a lot of people don't know that Rosa Parks um, worked pretty tirelessly with the, I can't think of the young lady's name who was raped um, by a gang of white men. Yes, she yes. worked on her oh, case. She was recently in the news. Yes, uh-huh. and a, 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 so tell us your YouTube channel because I want guys. I want you to go on here, look at her YouTube channel because I'm sure it's full of good stuff. That's the only place I didn't look. Crap, I'm kicking myself because I could have watched it today. <laughs> no, sorry, it, it takes a lot of effort to go all the way over there, but it, it's also too cool for middle school. Okay, and I that's one video that where I kind of explicitly talk about this and how to make sure that you're not sanitizing things and whitewashing things or just repeating what you learned right. when you were in school. And it's so much different for me, I know, because my education is in history. And so right. I know that, like, especially elementary teachers, they're expected to be experts in science and math and reading and history. And it's, it's difficult to to do your research on every single topic, but at the same time, it's really important and you have to be looking for good resources and making sure that you're transmitting the the correct information to your students. Mm. And, you know, you brought up a really good point. Um, You have to be confident in your, in your content area. You have to be able to say, this is, this is historically correct. And these are some things you're going to hear, but they're not correct. Where do you find resources? Like when you want to teach that Rosa Parks wasn't this meek lady who was just, you know, scared and like all these things that people believe about her. Where do you find your resources to make sure that kids get exposed to correct history? Because I think that for some teachers is a big deal. Because as we know, some of our textbooks are not historically accurate or they're written in a lens that's not um, true all the time. So where do you find right. your resources? One resource that I really like is Rethinking Schools. Yes. So I think it's just RethinkingSchools.com or RethinkingSchools.org. And they've got a lot of great resources. I have a book from their, their company or their movement um, and it's specifically about the civil rights movement. Mm. And that one's 
excellent. I think I have that one linked on, on the YouTube video. Um, Teaching Tolerance is mm, another yes, really yes. good website. Um, and for older kids, the Reading Like a Historian is another really good resource because it has primary source documents. I think as much as you can, if you work with real documents, real either just pictures or actual quotes or actual letters from people, um, that helps to keep you out of that, that rut of just oversimplifying a story. And you don't have to come to one you know, neat conclusion when you're teaching history. A lot of times it ends up being really complicated. Even with Rothschild Francis, he's my hero, but I understand why his family hated him. He, he might not have been a good family man. It sounds right. like he wasn't, but right. he did a lot for the people of the Virgin Islands. So I have to just hold those two things as both true. Right. And I think that's really um, interesting that you said that. So, guys, we'll link to those um, resources in our show notes. But I think those are some good starting points for people as they're trying to make sure that history isn't sanitized and that you're really talking about who the person really was. I have to ask you, what have you noticed? Like you have a YouTube channel and I, I try to encourage a lot of the newer teachers that I that I work with. Um, to get active on social media, meet other teachers mm-hmm. who are doing it, start YouTube channels, document what you do, because you can look back and you can say, oh, wow, that's like, I, I didn't realize I did this. This is, this is some things yeah. I need to work on. What have you, how has having a YouTube channel or even being on social media helped you, help you in your quest to make sure that you deliver to students the best history lesson that you absolutely can? I just find so many great resources from other people who leave comments on, like, Instagram posts or YouTube videos. And then I have people that, you know, challenge me, too, when I upload things. And I think I've had a YouTube channel for about four years now, maybe a little longer. And so at the beginning of my teaching, you know, there were things that I did with classroom management that I might not necessarily do now, you know, so I look back at those videos (laughs) and I'm like, okay, this this is how I felt then. I handle it differently now, but I can see that growth in myself and I remember what it was like to be new and it's scary and difficult to figure out your classroom management and stuff like that. So I think it helps me stay stay close to that new teacher (laughs) that I was not that long ago. Right, right. Yeah, and that's so interesting because a lot of people, and I tell new teachers this all the time, what you're doing now, you will likely change it. So like just, mm-hmm. but you live and you learn, right? And you become a better content expert when people challenge you, when people, when you find something and you read for yourself and you say, oh, wow, that's totally against what I thought. Um, and so this helps mm-hmm. you be a stronger professional. So I have to ask you, and I ask everybody this, um, if you could solve one problem in public education, what would it be and how would you solve it? It would be housing Oh, and man. I know that really? let's, <laughs> let's talk about that sounds strange, but uh, Dr. King actually talked about this as well that awesome. that public education isn't really the issue. It's a housing issue, and our schools are are more segregated now than they have been. Poor people's campaign Board yes. of education. Yes. yeah, it's, it's your school depends on where you live and 
where you live depends on how much money you make, and how much money you make depends on a lot of factors that are out of your control, and there's a societal structure set up so that some people rise and some people don't. Right. And I think that the housing <laughs> um, inequalities are probably the biggest um, block in in our way to equitable education. How would you solve it? I don't know. <laughs> I, that's one that I don't know how how to fix that one. But you see, when you when you work in neighborhoods where the house costs a lot, and and the parents have time to help their kids with their homework, and the parents have gone to college and gone all the way through high school, and they know how to help their kids, versus neighborhoods where. There's not a lot of homes at all. It's all right. apartments, and the parents are very busy and work three jobs and don't know how to help their kids do their homework. Uh, it's it's a very different education that they're getting, and it's it's not equal at all. Yeah, and I think I was just reading an article about teachers in San Francisco, or maybe it was even Hawaii. I think it was San Francisco, though, but they were saying that there are teachers who have to have roommates because the rent in San Francisco is so expensive or the rent in oh, New York yeah. is so expensive. And I think like, yeah. wow, these are people with college degrees. Can you imagine if you're the manager at Walmart? Can you imagine if you're, uh-huh. you're, you work at Popeye's? Like, how can you live? You're forced to live in poverty. You don't have a choice. Um, yep. So that housing issue, like, yeah, that's a real issue. And I think it's today I was finishing up on um, an article I was writing for the educators room. And I was reading more about Dr. King's poor people campaign. And he was very uh-huh. adamant and that, you know, his last year he shifted in like economic injustice. And yeah, yeah I was just like, this screams what's happening today with teachers yeah. around the globe. When we talk about equal pay, when we talk about students, where they live. Yeah. It's just, it's just, so interesting that you said that because I was like, yeah, this, I was reading about that today. Now, is there so one... many teachers right now are fighting for just basic, like a living wage right. to be able to make ends meet. Right. Like you can't expect, and I like, you can't expect teachers to stay in a profession when they max out at 45,000. How do you raise a family right. on that? Like, right. How do you, how do you raise a family on that? How do you send a child to school? How do you, pay for medical care um, with that. So I have to ask you, it is very crazy. And it's, um, I'm glad that teachers across the country are fighting back and saying stuff and not being scared because we're only powerful in numbers. Um, Mm -hmm. A question, what is one thing that people don't know about you um, and your love for history that you want the world to know? If you don't want us to know, don't tell us, but what is something that you can share with (laughs) us? Um, well, I just I try to to spread the word about Rothschild Francis as much as I can. I know he's not a known figure, so that is definitely something that I'm interested in doing one of these days is writing a book about him yes. and kind of um, sharing his story because I think that that's another kind of um, unexplored area of history, at least in what we learn in school, is like Caribbean history, and that's a big part of black history that a lot of people don't know about, or all the people from the Caribbean that were part of the Harlem Renaissance movement, so that's something that I would like to dedicate a lot of time to researching more and um, writing about more and speaking about more. 
Yeah. I'm, and, and, and it's, whenever you write the book, it's going to be an instant bestseller because there's nothing left <laughs> on the man. Like there's nothing. So yeah, I, I, when you write that book, please send me a message so I can buy I'll it. I'll send you a copy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Cause I want to read more about him. So that's all that we have guys. Take a second, Megan, tell us again where they can find you and we'll put them in the show notes guys, but tell us where we can find you all your platforms. I'm on Instagram at Too Cool for Middle School, YouTube, Too Cool for Middle School. I also have a Teachers Pay Teachers store with resources about Rothschild Francis if you want to learn a little bit more through that. That's also Too Cool for Middle School. I'm on Facebook, but I never check it. So (laughs) (laughs) go to Instagram or YouTube. Those are better. (laughs) You know, and the crazy part is I just started using YouTube like really this year, end of last year, because Facebook, like we have... 80,000 fans and so it's like super busy on there all the time oh man okay I need to go over there yeah so I don't go on I I just now started going on Instagram like really heavy and I'm like oh it's Mm -hmm. all these cool things on Instagram it's so different so yeah it's just Mm -hmm. um, it's great though there's only so many you can juggle at once I think you just kind of have to pick two or three and yeah we're gonna and yeah, focus on that one. <laughs> yeah, and focus on that one. So, guys, thank you for joining us. We will have episode 69 next week. What we want you to do now is to make sure that you guys register for the Teacher Self-Care Conference. Don't forget, June 15th, June 16th, in Atlanta, Georgia, two full days where we're talking about all things around self-care. Go to www.teacherselfcare.org. Use the code ATLANTA to get a discount and we will see you guys in June. Megan, thank you for letting, allowing us to interview you and we will see you next time guys.